To the ambitious new manager, the big question is this. What does it take to be a great manager? Well, great managers know how to motivate and build a great team. Great managers know how to win trust and respect, make an impact and achieve their goals. And great managers get promoted again and again, and they make more money because of it. So how do managers like you, who are bootstrapping your own careers, join their club? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name's Michael Barrell, and welcome to Making a Manager. I hope you're doing well, and welcome to my little wireless program. If you're new here, well, a big fat welcome to you. I'm Michael, host of this here podcast. Thanks a bomb for joining me. I really appreciate it. Have you smashed that subscribe button yet? Well, if not, then all I have to say is... Let me in, man. Bring me in from out from the cold. I don't take up much space. I don't bite. I'm quiet. I'm clean, very respectful, and I get along with others. And if you don't, well, let's just say that I know where you live and justice will be exacted upon you. Now, empty threats aside, if you've listened before, big welcome back, friends. Super appreciate you as always. In other news, my two kids, Maddie, who's three, and Henry, who's one, well, they've been getting up super early lately. I'm talking 5 a.m. early. Bless their cotton socks. But if you add in a few overnight wakes on top of that, well, let's just say I've been a shell of the man that I once was. Often, I reckon they're in cahoots together. Taking it in turns, Henry waking up one night, then Madison the next night, all on their merry quest to suck the souls out of their dear helpless parents, Rach and I. Anyway, the two cherubs both managed to sleep in today until 7 o'clock, which is bloody fantastic for me. But the dog, Evie, our ever so slightly overweight Labrador, who sleeps in my and Rachel's room, well, she was up most of the night instead vomiting. On the carpet, thoroughly foul, very upsetting, what the F. Two steps forward and one step backwards in this house, eh? So, the deeper meaning of that story is, if you still refuse to subscribe to my little wireless program here, then please, at a bare minimum, keep your fingers crossed for me tonight. I want sleeping children and no vomiting dog. Anyway, life goes on. Rachel's at work. She's a primary school teacher. Nanny's downstairs watching the kids. Thanks heaps, Nanny, which means that we should get into this episode, which is, of course, all about the dangerous myth about employee motivation. Sounds a bit dramatic, yeah? Well, riddle me this, friend. A new airline wants to compete in the low-cost, low-frills segment of the US air market. Obviously, The productivity and efficiency of its labour force is going to be essential to the airline's success in this low-cost market. Yet, the company will pay virtually no one on the basis of individual merit or performance. No bonuses, no performance-based pay. So here's my question to you. Does this new airline even stand a chance of success? Well, you better listen up because the answer might surprise you. If you believe the airline hoping to compete in the low-cost, low-frills market would not find success in the absence of using individual performance-based incentives, then you are dead wrong. In fact, you have just succumbed to one of the great myths about motivating a workforce. And this is the myth, that one of the most effective ways to make people more productive and efficient is through individual incentive compensation. In other words, the myth is this. Individual incentive pay improves performance. And why is it a myth? Well, sit back, friend, grab a beverage. It's 9am here in Melbourne, so I've got a coffee. And allow me to take you on an epic journey into the weeds of team motivation. 
You see, the airline that I speak of is Southwest Airlines. Southwest never used a system of paying its people on the basis of individual merit or performance. Yet, at its peak, Southwest was both the cost and productivity leader in its industry. Which is one reason why, in business schools the world over, the case of Southwest keeps coming up again and again and again. Right, just to drill the point home, I've got another one for you. Here's my question. You ready? Would you have invested in a software company that didn't offer its employees bonuses, stock options, or other monetary incentives that could have made them millionaires? The answer? You should have invested in them because this company succeeded mightily, growing in its first 21 years at a compound annual rate of more than 25%. The company I speak of is SAS Institute. Instead of emphasising pay, SAS achieved an incredibly low turnover rate of below 4%. And mind you, that 4% was in an industry where the turnover norm was close to 20%. By offering intellectually challenging work, an environment that was family friendly, and by offering other benefits and the opportunity to work with a diverse team whilst using state-of-the-art equipment, SAS, like Southwest, turned the thinking about employee motivation and compensation on its head. Now, the cases of SAS and Southwest, plus a bucket list of others, happened over 20 years ago. So what does that mean for a manager like you trying to guide today's workforce? Well, the fact is that nothing has changed. In fact, the myth that individual incentive pay improves performance is more pervasive now than ever. Not a day goes by where I don't see leaders continuing to damage their organisations by rigidly believing that the road to improving workforce cost and productivity is through incentivising individual employee performance by basing their pay on that performance. In reality, individual incentive pay undermines performance, and I'm not just talking about the performance of the individual, but also the performance of the business as a whole. There is no shortage of studies that strongly suggest that individual incentive pay undermines teamwork, fosters short-term focus, and it leads people to believe that pay is actually unrelated to performance, and that, instead, it's about having the, in inverted commas, right relationships with your bosses or colleagues. So here's what I want to do in this episode. We're going to have a look at some of the factors that account for why this myth about employer motivation is so pervasive. We're going to have a look at the evidence that disproves the myth's underlying assumptions. And we're going to have a look at how leaders like you and I can think more accurately and usefully about employee pay and motivation. So as I said, we're going to be traipsing into the weeds a little. And we'll come out at the end a whole lot smarter and better looking too, hopefully, because of it. Are you ready? Well, let's start by finding someone or something to blame for this myth that individual incentive pay drives creativity and performance. Well, it looks like that blame should rest squarely on the shoulders of economic theory. Specifically, we need to place the blame at the feet of the economic model of human behaviour. As you can tell, I'm still undecided as to whether that blame should sit on the shoulders or at the feet, but, you know, whatever aspect of human anatomy you ultimately choose for my metaphor here, you get the idea. Right, where was I? Yes, the economic model of human behaviour, which is taught in every business school on the planet and continues to be held true in popular press, make the woefully incorrect assumption that we humans behave rationally. That we lot walking around on our two legs, strolling on our merry way out of the African savannah, ready to conquer the planet, are driven by the best information available at the time, and that we are designed to maximise our self-interest. According to the economic model of human behaviour, 
You, your neighbour, me and my neighbour, take on jobs and decide how much effort to expend in those jobs based on what sort of financial return we can expect as a result. It's an easy assumption to make, isn't it? That if pay is not dependent on performance, so the theory goes, we won't assign sufficient energy or attention to those jobs. It's a pretty bleak assumption too, I reckon, but as you'll see, it's also a lazy one. The problem with this economic model of our behaviour is that it portrays employment as something that is repellent or aversive. It implies that the only way that you or I can be induced to work is through some sort of sequence of rewards and sanctions. This is what Professor James Barron of Stanford's Business School has to say on this. The image of workers in these models is somewhat akin to Newton's first law of motion. Employees remain in a state of rest unless compelled to change that state by a stronger force impressed upon them, namely an optimal labour contract. Worse still, as the economist Robert Frank puts, these theories of how we behave are too often self-fulfilling. He essentially says that businesses often act on the basis of these theories and through their own actions produce in employees the behaviours expected. For example, if I was a business and I believe that my people will work hard only if I specifically reward them for doing so, then I will provide rewards that are contingent on that hard work, thereby conditioning my people to work only when they are rewarded. Alternatively, if I, as a business, expect my people to be untrustworthy, then I will closely watch and control them, and in doing so, I will signal to them that they cannot be trusted. This untrustworthiness ultimately then becomes an expectation that they will conform to. Now, there's one other factor that helps in advancing this myth about employee motivation above most others. It's the compensation consulting industry. You know what I'm talking about. The so-called expert folk that corporations usually pay big bucks to to come in and tinker with employee pay systems with the promise of improving employee performance. Well, as you'll see, it's that industry that has a few perverse incentives to keep the myth well and truly alive for the rest of us. The first incentive is that, for many consulting firms, advice about pay is their bread and butter. So although the evidence suggests that there are much more effective ways to improve workforce performance than by tinkering with employee pay packets, probably too much of a selfless behaviour to expect advice like this from these firms. The second perverse incentive to keep the myth alive is that tinkering around with employee pay is far simpler for managers than to go about changing organisational culture, the organisation of the work that the business performs and the amount of trust and respect that the organisation portrays. And of course, it's an even easier option for the consultant who advises these managers to do so. Okay, so those are the factors that contribute to the myth that individual incentive pay improves employee motivation and performance. But what about what's happening right now? Well, take a quick Google search and you will find that the number of companies that use individual incentive pay, like bonuses and commission pay, for their workforce continues to increase, while the proportion of companies that use profit sharing, which is a much more collective employee reward system, continues to drop. And that's the case across most of the Western world. But get this, despite the popularity of individual incentive pay as a means of driving employee performance, the problems are many and they have been very well documented. Individual incentive pay has been regularly shown to undermine teamwork. It drives employees to focus on short-term gains at the expense of sustainable long-term progress for the business. And it leads employees to associate compensation with office political skills, relationships and ingratiating personalities rather than workplace performance. 
It's for this reason that so many quality experts, including William Deming, who is widely known as the leading management thinker in the field of quality, so strongly argue against using individual incentive pay schemes. As study after study shows, which I'll link to in the show notes, merit-based pay almost always has no positive effect on office performance. Take Sears, for example, who was forced to eliminate its own commission pay system when officials found widespread consumer fraud throughout its automobile stores in California. Sears staff, eager to make sales and earn commissions on repair sales, were found to be selling unneeded services to unsuspecting customers. Or take Highland Superstores, an electronics retailer, who eliminated commission pay after finding that the system encouraged such aggressive sales behaviour that customers were left feeling alienated. And even when merit-based pay systems are based on objective indicators, like time taken to perform a specified task, employees exhibit no difference in performance after the introduction of a merit-based pay system. Contrast this with a study on a manufacturer of exhaust system components who eliminated individual incentive pay and introduced a more group-oriented compensation system. Here, employee grievances reduced, product quality increased nearly tenfold, and perceptions of teamwork and concern for performance all improved. So the conclusion is pretty straightforward. Most individual merit or performance-based pay systems share two attributes. They absorb vast amounts of managerial time and resources, and they make everybody unhappy. Okay, so you've heard that individual incentive pay is pretty much going to be a universally rotten idea if what you are trying to do is motivate your employees. So what can you do? Well, part of the answer lies in group-oriented compensation systems. Now, before I get into the benefits of moving towards group-oriented compensation systems, let me lay to rest one concern that so often gets voiced when the possibility of removing individual incentive pay and replacing it with group-oriented compensation is raised. It's the so-called free-rider problem. Essentially, the concern or argument is that employees under a group-oriented compensation system will not work hard because they know that if rewards are based on collective performance and their colleagues make the effort, they will share in those rewards regardless of their individual effort. Well, let it be known that this argument to avoid a group-oriented compensation system fails for two big reasons. One is that, very much to the surprise of those who spend most of their time devouring economic texts, empirical evidence from a multitude of studies shows that the true extent of free riding is actually pretty limited. As one meta-analysis shows, which I'll link to in the show notes, when under the conditions that raise concerns about free riding, employees more often than not end up cooperating with each other instead. The second reason that free riding shouldn't be a concern is this. The fact remains that individuals do not make decisions about how much effort to expend on a given task in a vacuum. They are heavily influenced by the social relationships that they have with their workmates and peer pressure that exists within the business. This influence is potent, and even though this influence might be at its strongest in smaller groups, it is a force that still considerably mitigates against free riding even in much larger teams. So it really should come as no surprise that those businesses who pay on a collective basis, through profit sharing, gain sharing or otherwise, almost always outperform those businesses who don't. Why? Because people want more out of their jobs than just money. They want an enjoyable work environment. Now this doesn't mean that the work needs to be easy, far from it. 
It means that people seek a work environment that is fun and meaningful, an environment where they can use their gifts and skills whilst working with others in an atmosphere of mutual respect. So there's a certain logic coming through here, isn't there? That any business believing that it can solve its problems in attracting, retaining and motivating its people solely through tinkering with its compensation system is likely not spending the time and effort it should be on the wider work environment. Spending time and effort on things like better defining its jobs, better creating and nurturing its culture, and on injecting fun and meaning into the work it performs. Of course, this all comes down to how managerial time and attention is distributed, doesn't it? How scarce managerial resources are put to use. But here's the thing. The time and attention you choose to spend on managing your employee compensation system is time and attention you don't have to devote to other aspects of the work environment, which may ultimately be much more critical to your success and the success of your team. So that brings us to the biggest question of all. What do you need to do to actually get employee motivation right? Well, for starters, go ahead and see what happens when you include a large dose of collective rewards into your employee compensation packages. Next, choose an aggregated unit to measure performance. The more aggregated the unit that you can choose to measure performance, the better placed you will be to measure that performance. Put another way, it's pretty simple to accurately tell how well a business has done with respect to sales, profit, productivity and quality. What's more difficult is trying to decipher which individual employee is responsible for exactly how much quality, sales, or productivity. In fact, it's not just difficult. More often than not, it's nigh on impossible. It was probably best said by Nobel Prize winning economist Herbert Simon, who recognized that people in organizations are interdependent, and therefore the results of the organization are the consequence of collective behavior and performance. And what about the task of fighting the myth that employees are primarily motivated by money? Well, you fight it by de-emphasizing pay in your business, by not portraying pay as the main thing that you get for working at your business. How? Well, take a lesson from Tandem Computer before it was acquired by Compaq. During recruitment, Tandem would not tell candidates their salary unless it expected them to accept a job. In the event that they did ask what their pay would be, they would simply be informed that Tandem paid good competitive salaries. The reasoning for this was pretty simple. Tandem's philosophy was that if you came for the money, you would leave for the money. And Tandem wanted people who were there for the culture because they liked the work and not because it provided something, that something being money, that every company could offer. Tandem wanted to avoid emphasising pay as the primary reward because it would encourage people to come and stay for the wrong reasons. The other thing you might want to recognise is that pay has symbolic components. By signalling what and who within the business is valued, it is pay that both reflects and helps determine your culture. So it's critical that your messages to staff about pay practices are communicated as intended. For example, talking about the value of teamwork and cooperation, but then neglecting to incorporate a group-based component into the pay system matters because paying solely on an individual basis signals to employees what the business believes is actually important, which is individual behaviour and performance. Similarly, talking about the importance of all people in the organisation, but then paying some disproportionately more than others, or paying large executive bonuses while laying off people and asking for wage freezes, 
all goes to considerably muddying your message. I think you get the idea. Another practice used to better align pay in company culture is to make pay structures public. This sends a powerful symbolic message too. While some businesses reveal salary distributions by position or level, some, like Whole Foods, actually make the data on individual pay available to all members who are interested. Yet others choose to maintain a high level of secrecy about pay. I ask why. What messages are those businesses sending? Keeping pay a secret suggests that the company has something to hide or doesn't trust its employees with the information. In addition, keeping things like pay secret just encourages people to uncover those secrets. After all, if something is worth the effort of hiding, then it must be interesting and important enough to spend effort and energy in uncovering it, right? There's no denying it. Compensation systems that are more open and transparent send a really positive message about the equity of the system and about the trust that the business places in its people. The second last tip is that managers should consider embracing other methods besides pay to signal company values and focus behaviour. As I've already laboured on about, it's not easy to design an incentive system that can't be gamed. So instead of using your pay system to signal to employees what is important, take a much simpler route. Just tell your people what is important for the business and why. Yep, it's simple, but it will result in more nuanced and rapid changes in behaviour because your business won't have to change its compensation system every time the priorities of the business are altered a little. Try it. Actually talk to your people about what is important and why, instead of just trying to send subtle messages through your compensation system. The last tip, and perhaps most importantly, is that pay needs to be seen for what it is. Just one single element among a broad set of management practices that either build or diminish teamwork, motivation and performance. So take a moment, take a step back and think deeply about whether your business's compensation practices are congruent with your other management practices and reinforce rather than oppose their effects. And that's it. Don't be afraid to challenge the myth about employee pay and motivation. Of course, it's easier and less controversial to see what everyone else is doing and to follow along with that, but don't. Look at the evidence and take a more sophisticated approach. Do what you need to do to transcend the myth and accept that pay cannot substitute for a working environment that is fun, high on trust, and full of meaningful work. You're probably wondering where these ideas came from. Well, you can go further, and I'd encourage you to do so. By taking a look at my organisational wellbeing hero's work, Jeffrey Pfeffer, in his extensive article, Six Dangerous Myths About Pay, in the Harvard Business Review. It's a bit of a slog, which is why I wanted to summarise a bit of it in this episode. But I'm sure you'll love it, and I'll link it up in the show notes. Right now, while it's fresh in your mind, go to makingamanager.com. That's makingamanager.com. On that webpage, you'll see that I'm giving away my complete employee feedback swipe file. No, this isn't some kind of clearance of old stuff that's no good. This is a swag of full-fledged, really helpful, evidence-based rules and tactics built specifically for managers like you who want to become more persuasive and effective at giving feedback and having difficult conversations with your employees. Download and copy these plug-and-play templates in the order that I deliver them to you. And I sincerely believe that if you implement what I share with you, then this year will be fantastic. Again, it's completely free. There are no tricks to this offer, by the way. Go to makingamanager.com and get it while the getting's good. 
And that's a wrap. Now go on, get out there and kick some ass, stay awesome, and thanks for listening. 